Let's spend some time in God's Word here this evening. I'm going to invite you to join me. Luke chapter number 1. Luke chapter number 1. For those who haven't been with us for the course of this month, we have been in Luke chapter number 1. Every single message, morning and evening, uh, on this uh, section of Scripture from verse 46 all the way to verse 55. And it's what we uh, normally entitle Mary's Magnificat. An excellent expression of praise before her God for what he has done. And uh, we have had quite a study of this. And we're going to continue with our study tonight. And uh, Lord willing, if the snow doesn't take over and the ice and all the rest, uh, we will be able to finish that up this Sunday as well. But today or this evening rather, just verse number 51 through verse 53. You may think that this is a very strange set of verses to use on a Christmas Eve. It reads, He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Doesn't sound so Christmassy now, does it? But we're going to spend some time here. So, Heavenly Father, as we come before you tonight with your word open in front of us, we know that uh, you are our teacher. You are the one who guides us and helps us to understand in all these things tonight, Lord. This is a passage that... uh, will also draw us to magnify you all the more. And I pray that uh, you might challenge us with it and work deeply within us. Help us to see how great you are and uh, know that uh, as we worship you this evening, as we celebrate the birth of Christ this next day, uh, your name will be magnified in our midst. And that's our desire here tonight too. In Jesus' name, amen. There are four simple little stanzas in this uh, section 46 all the way through 55. Mary is declaring what great things God has done for her. She magnifies his name. She exalts, as the word might be in front of you, for what he has done for her personally. She recognizes his attributes in the second stanza of this section, his attributes of uh, power, he's the mighty one, his attributes of holiness, his attributes of mercy. And she's focused on those for a handful of verses, uh, 49 and 50. And then she moves into this section in verse 51 through 53, which we look at here tonight, about God's sovereign actions. And we will see that, and following that, she she speaks of God's mercy, especially to Israel. But sovereign is an intentional word here tonight. God's sovereign actions. That's the term I'll use for the phrase that we have just read from 51 through 53. That which God does by his own wisdom, and by his own will, and by his own power, is all attributed to his sovereignty. 
Nothing is dictate, dictated to him. He does not work out of response as if uh, he must do these things because circumstances demanded of him. I believe he's an initiating kind of God and not one that uh, has to respond to keep up with what goes on in our world. He operates in sovereignty 100% of the time. That's in keeping with his attributes, by the way. We've been looking at that in this section. And the fact that his power, when we speak of that attribute, operates at 100% all the time. It never diminishes. His holiness, another attribute, operates at 100% all the time. It never diminishes. His mercy also operates at 100% all the time. And that's where we start to try to put together thoughts and we say, but this is hard to grasp. Power and holiness and mercy all working in conjunction, all at full measure, 100%, not one diminishing ever. That's the character of our God. It's an incredible thing to, to behold. And we could start adding any one of his other attributes to that and say the same thing. For God works completely as God all the time. He's never less. Never less. And so when you insert the word sovereign in there too, he is always sovereign. He's never less sovereign. He, he doesn't have moments where he's, he's uh, uh, giving his sovereignty away to another. He is sovereign. Always. Now that's an incredible thing to put together and try to understand. I know, because more times than not, when we look at sovereignty and we wonder, how can God be sovereign when? And then we fill in some event from our newspaper, the title of what goes on in the, the events of our land. We, we look at sovereignty from human eyes too often, and we ask, how? Or when? Or, Really? Some of the questions we might raise when we think of such a term. But the reality is, he is sovereign. And that's all the time. The verses we look at here tonight are interesting ones in light of all that. I call them his sovereign actions. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who... We're humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He sent the rich away empty-handed. All of these seem like contrasts, don't they? One thing's going here, and the other thing is the opposite, as we have walked through just the thoughts of that. And I found it interesting in the theological books I read, uh, some of them much older in, uh, in time. Some generally use this passage... Uh, twisted a little bit to justify social agendas that have taken place in our land and in other countries over the years. Uh, justifying programs, using these words to, to uh, deal mainly with relief for the poor, for one. Uh, and taken to the extreme, their idea is that reduce the rich so you could provide for the poor. And this concept is used and, and promoted by some of the theologians over the years. 
a social strategy that I know it still operates today, doesn't it? We still see such things like that. But I want you to mark something carefully as we look at this passage and these particular words. There are many poor <laughs> in our world. It's always been that way. Even Jesus made that comment. The poor you always have with you. God works in reference to those who fear him. If we look back up in verse number 49 or 50, his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. That's our context that he is speaking of. See, he's not careless. Our God is not careless in relief. He's not careless in mercy. He's not careless as if... Um, Somehow just being poor will will give you some better place in his regard. That's not necessarily the case here. For one thing, there are those who we would say are poor because of their own devices. <laughs> they have spent their funds on destructive habit, habits and such, and hardly does that fit the picture that we're looking at here tonight. And for another thing, it is not uncommon at all for God's own servants to be poor. The Apostle Paul will be a good example of that. And then if you go even further than that, Jesus Christ himself became poor for us. There are times when God prefers his servants to be poor. There are times when he prefers his servants to be sick, even to be injured, even to be killed. Now, through that, he is glorified. And maybe we don't understand that fully down here. But he is glorified in and through his servants. Even while they're poor. Even while they're ill. Even while they're injured. Even if they lose their life. See, all of that amounts to his sovereignty when we try to understand it. It's about his sovereignty in all these things. The last thing we considered was his mercy in verse 50. His mercy. It's true from generation to generation to generation to generation. And to this generation we're living in now, is he not still merciful? Aren't we glad for that? And the truth is, he will be merciful to the next generation that follows us. And he'll be merciful to the next that follows that too. That's the nature of his mercy. He doesn't turn it on and off. He's always merciful, generation after generation. But it was qualified, particularly in verse 50, toward those who fear him. Toward those who fear him. Now, let's uh, illustrate what is meant by all this in the words that we have tonight. Verse 51, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down rulers from their throne. That's a picture you can see in your mind, can't you? He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He's sent away the rich empty-handed. You look at his power. You look at his holiness. You look at his mercy. And those are consistent, and I've been stressing that. They, they never diminish. They never fluctuate, regardless of the situation. And it's true that as God extends that power, that mercy, that holiness toward us, 
we are grateful, aren't we? When He should look at us personally and choose us and love us and draw us to Himself, that He would, he would extend to us those attributes of, of His power and His holiness and His mercy. We, we like those things. And we rejoice in those things. But here's the fact that I set before you here. Even these things are not just aimed in our direction. As we see here, it is toward those who fear Him. But still this world has received His mercy. There are groups that are referenced in verse 51 through 53 that have both seen His mighty arm at work. We have those who uh, are those who are, are scattered because of the proud thoughts of their heart. We have those who are brought down from their thrones. We have those who uh, have been sent away empty-handed. These have also seen God's arm at work. Let's use that as our theme here this evening. Just that phrase. Verse 51. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. That speaks of power. When you speak of an arm, you speak of power. What can he do? The arm represents the power. We've seen all kinds of verses in Scripture that speaks of that thing. Matter of fact, earlier in this, statement all the way back up to oh let's see verse 49 for the mighty one has done great things for me this is this is where mary made it personal the mighty one has done great things for me and now these great things are also spoken of in reference to those who do not fear him as well what has he done? He scattered those who were proud. He's brought down rulers from the throne. He sent away the rich empty-handed. Scattered, brought down, sent away. All expressions of his great arm and his great power. You see, God is never feeble in the face of the wicked. Never feeble in the face of the wicked. That same arm that delivers us and supports us and saves us and upholds us that we rejoice in is the same arm that scatters and brings down and sends away. Same arm. Same God. So what do we find? We find the arrogant. Immediately the arrogant are brought up here in verse number 51, the mighty ones on this earth, the, the ones powerful perhaps with their armies, uh, their positions in this land, saturated with wealth, proud as can be. And maybe that's our key word, because in their thoughts, the imaginations of their heart, they've exalted themselves. They've magnified their own being. They have, they've boasted. They've paraded about like the peacock. In their imaginations, they once thought that if we pool all of our resources, 
our wisdom. If we pull all of our wisdom together, if, if we pull all of our strength together, we could build a tower. Remember a story back in the book of Genesis? They said, let us, let us build this tower that reaches up into the heavens. And I could only imagine as it went up story by story by story, as it grew higher and that structure rose, their confidence and their pride went with it. Conceit kept pace with the construction. According to the book of Genesis, these are the words that go along with this passage. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the Son of Man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. And they have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which I purpose to do will be impossible for them. So come, let us go down. And there confuse their language. So that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. Therefore the name is called Babel. Because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. His arm scatters. Dispersed. He broke it up. He chased them in every direction. Those who were proud in their hearts. How many times do we find in scripture that God deals with the arrogant in this way? Over and over we have records where he will take a, a ruler by the scruff of the neck and, and pull him down from his throne. Nebuchadnezzar is a good example of one who in his pride one day walked out on his palace uh, porch and looked out over his city and said, Ah, Babylon, the city I built. And God took him from his power. But there was another episode that happened many, many years before. Hard to even say when that possibly was, but there was a time when Lucifer, the angel who had been created so beautifully, he desired to have a throne too, and he wanted it to be set above God's. I will, he said, I will ascend to the highest place. I will set up my throne in those places and he found out that the arm of the Lord is not short. He was cast down from that position. You see, we could spend a good portion of an evening just supporting that fact. But it's there in Scriptures over and over, the fact that God has done mighty deeds with His arm toward the unrighteous. To sum it up in a, a simple passage, we, we will look at a section of Scripture, but before we even get there, let us not, at this point, start to think, well, those arrogant individuals out there, those, those some sort of other people, certainly nothing to do with us. We rejoice at times, because we're not one of those, right? But the reality is, that we were one of those, 
when the Lord looked down and blessed us by His grace and His mercy. When the Lord found us, we too walked in the course of this world, didn't we? Walked according to the principles of this world. We were by nature children of wrath. We were there too. So go with me to a a fascinating little section of scripture in Isaiah chapter number 5. And if at this point you're starting to think, boy, pastor, it's Christmas Eve and you're depressing me. Hold on. Because we're talking about the mighty things that God does with his arm. And this passage will show you. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse number 21, this is where we start this. And I don't know why this is true. Maybe it's because there's several verses in the book of Isaiah that always surfaces at Christmas time. Like, uh, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Uh, Also in chapter 7, about the virgin who would conceive and bear a son. Those things come to my mind. And every December I say, I'm just going to spend the whole month reading Isaiah as my devotion. And I love it. I always tend to do that. And I'm assuming it's because of those passages. But uh, as I'm going through this, there's so many chapters that that are, are powerful in a display of God and the way he deals with mankind. Here in Isaiah chapter 5, we see in verse 21 these words, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine, and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe, who take away the rights of the one who are in the right. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot, and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord is burned against His people, and He has stretched out His hand against them, and struck them down, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. Those are ominous words, aren't they? Picture the arm stretched out in wrath. And here the Lord pours this wrath upon these individuals, but it doesn't exhaust him. His arm is stretched out still. Now what alarms me about that passage, in that I read these words, is that as you start working through Isaiah from this chapter on, about every 25 verses, it will say, and his arm is stretched out still. It's a repeated theme all the way through this section. I'll show you other examples. Chapter number 9 skip quite a number of these, but in chapter number 9, in verse number 12, speaks of the Syrians here, the Arameans on the east and the Philistines on the west, and they devour Israel with gaping jaws. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. And then verse number 17, 
Therefore the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows, for every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. And then verse 21, Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh, and together they are against Judah. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. Isn't that incredible? Over and over and over, it's like this. Go to chapter 24 of this same book. Chapter number 24. The first six verses, listen to these. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, and the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. That's very similar to the picture that Mary gave to us, of one being down and the other being up. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers, exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants for their transgressed laws. They violated statutes. They broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. At this point, if you're reading through this book, you're starting to think, Wow, is there any hope? Is there any hope? When God stretches out a hand like that, is there any hope at all? That's why I like the next chapter. Chapter 25. All of a sudden, look at the words that come from the mouth of the writer, Isaiah. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. For you have worked wonders. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. You have made a city into a heap a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For, for the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. Like heat and drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by a shadow of a cloud, the, silence, or the song of the ruthless is silenced. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. For the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And it will be said that in that day, behold, 
This is our God for whom we have waited, that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. See a difference now? And Moab will be trodden down in his place, as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. He will spread out his hands in the middle of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord would lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. The unsaleable fortifications of your walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, even to the dust. Did you see hope? Did you hear words of salvation? Did you hear the victory of one who takes away death and wipes tears from eyes? Whose hand? Is it not the same mighty one? The one who crushes the proud lifts up the humble. The one who meets our needs. Oh, I know what department we deserve to be in. I know what we deserved. Scripture tells us that. The wages of sin is death. We deserved every single bit of that hand stretched out still. But that hand turned and drew us to himself. That same hand. That's the hand that I speak of here this evening. Because I would much rather be on this side of his arm, drawn to him, receiving his deliverance, receiving his salvation, receiving his grace. I'd much rather have that hand reach out toward me than be forever on the other side where his hand is stretched out still. In case you wonder if he's ever drawn that hand back, I could tell you this clearly. He has not. In John 3, verse 36, it says these words, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You can't say that any stronger in the Greek language. Abides. Always is the phrase. Always abides on those who will not believe. See, the picture that I set before you here this evening is real simple, and I don't think you have much difficulty understanding that you're either on one side of that arm or the other. You're either one that that arm is stretched out against, or you're the recipient of that arm pulling you toward him. And finding your comfort and your your deliverance and your salvation. You see, God, in keeping with His character, always extends His hand against the proud. Who are the proud? Anyone who does it their way, by their strength, by their wisdom. Anyone who thinks that somehow by my wisdom, my strength, my, my abilities of any kind, I'm going to find some way to set myself up for eternity. Anyone who rejects the Son of God that God has offered, who refuses to believe in Him, they are the proud in heart. 
And God is eternally opposed to those. He will never diminish his strength toward them. It is declared by our Lord that he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through him. Who are those who come to him? They recognize that he is the way and they turn to him. They find everlasting life just like it says in scripture. I think that's the way Mary's describing this as she goes through this passage. These folks find relief. Not just merely in the moment. They they find unexpected favor from God himself. Because they came to him his way. He has done mighty deeds with his arm, she writes. Says. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. This is the hand of the Lord that's been extended to us in His mercy. By His power and through His holiness, He has given to us our salvation from that hand. That's the hand we look about tonight as we think through this passage. Think of the change that He has made. We who were dead are now alive in Christ Jesus. We who were lost are now found. We who were filthy have been made clean. He has made us new creatures, hasn't he? He has given to us hope. He has given to us peace. He has given to us an identification as children of God. And John even says, and such you are. I like the way he says that. He has indwelled us with his Holy Spirit. He, if we spent the rest of the evening and days on end, we could talk about all he's done for us. Ephesians had to sum it all up in that one phrase. He has given to us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. You're not lacking one. Not lacking one. Because of what God has done. He has blessed us to the fullest measure. He has done great things, has he not? He's done great things with his arm. And we are the recipients of such great things. I like the way Mary said that. He has done great things for me. Is that how personal it gets with you? He has done great things for me. So how did she start? My soul magnifies the Lord. Magnifies the Lord. I like the way Isaiah said it here, and I I read it to you early, but one more time, listen. Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Don't forget, Jesus didn't come on this day that we're going to celebrate tomorrow just to give us a holiday. He came to give us life. That's what our God has given to us. A good cause to rejoice? Absolutely so. We're going to close with a beautiful song. It wasn't intended to be a Christmas song, they say. It was a challenge one day. A young man walking home with his father from church, complaining about the songs they sang in church. 
And his father said, well, why don't you do something even better? And he wrote the words, to joy to the world. And we still sing that because we mean it from the heart, don't we? Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll close with joy to the world. Heavenly Father, indeed you have done great things. When we see what we really deserve, Lord, as we have had glimpses of that throughout this evening, and the fact that you have looked to us with your favor, with your mercy, with your grace, and with your love, and you forgave us and set us in a relationship with you that will last forever, we exalt your name. We magnify you. Thank you so much for what you have done. Truly rejoicing ought to be the thing from our heart in response to the thing that you have done. May our expression tonight in song, may our expression tomorrow in celebration be that of joy. Because we know the great God who has a great arm. And we rejoice in that here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.